scripture reading is found in the book of Acts, chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, as well as verses 42 through 45. These two passages are found on pages 909 through 911 in the Pew Bible. If you don't own your own Bible, we encourage you to take that one home with you. Hear the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in, uh, in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, "Are not all these who speaking uh, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in our own language?" Verses forty-two through forty-five. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Now, the black church is supposed to say that. So, amen. Yeah. <laughs> Um, first of all, I'm grateful to be here uh, to have this opportunity. Uh, Reed and I have uh, had a great chance and a great opportunity to get to know each other as we have uh, done a little travel together. Uh, drove to St. Louis and uh, just got a chance to hang out. You know, when you're stuck in a car with each other, you have to listen to what everybody says and, uh, and you have nowhere to run. So you are uh, kind of subject to, to forced fellowship, uh, which, which we enjoy. Uh, first of all, um, being a part of uh, Christ Community for uh, so many years and feeling like a true kinsman, uh, I, do, I do appreciate the opportunity from, from time to time to make my rhymes. Now, we're going to do something a little bit interesting this morning. Uh, I am, um, you know, I've spent a lot of years, the last few years, especially working uh, with my uh, PhD work, and not only dealing with this subject, but dealing with the whole idea of social learning and what happens to people over a period of time who are in systems and how those systems kind of influence and drive on their own and the people's opinion becomes secondary to the objective of the system. And so we want to spend some time talking about what that looks like. My, my temptation will be to give you a lot of illustrations, which is kind of how I normally communicate. And my, uh, so I want to pull back on that a little bit to make sure that we get the content that we need and walk away with some understanding about what steps we can take to move forward. But the thing I want you to really realize is how amazing Christ community and Christian fellowship are in doing something that is opposite of what this world system, especially this American system, really expects for us to do. Uh, I think we don't realize how enormous this is going to be when it's written in history and when people discuss it uh, because we're in it. Uh, and so, therefore, we can't see uh, how magnificent it is. So, hopefully that will be clear as well. So, I want to go to God in prayer. I want to give you uh, kind of where we're going, 
what our primary objective is, and then uh, and then see where God takes us. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the time here, the moment that we get to huddle together and kind of uh, grasp what you have to say to us through your plan. You've given us a plan for living, and uh, we call it Scripture. And its its primary intent is to help us to know you but then to apply that knowledge of you into our lives because knowing you is not just academic. It is demanding of change. And so, Father, we ask that you would help our thinking uh, as we grasp what you have to say to us. We want to walk in a direction uh, that will create the kind of culture that you're looking for in the church overall, and then especially the kind of walk we should have individually. I ask that you let not the speakers stand in the way, uh, of your word, uh, but give us uh, perfect health, logical progression of thought, insight into the word, wisdom in the presentation, so that your outcome will be achieved in spite of us. And we'll give you praise for that in Christ's name. Amen. Yes, we are in the season of basketball. And this is game five. And it's interesting when I hear young people talk about what they're seeing on TV because they will talk about. Uh, LeBron James as, as if he is the god of basketball. As if when we get to heaven, he'll be the one praising God through basketball. I mean, that, that whole anticipation. And we always want to, people my age, always want to remind them that you weren't here in the 90s. Because right. <laughs> in the 90s, we saw a dynasty that took place uh, by the Chicago Bulls who demonstrated what basketball was really all about. And so even as we look at Golden State take the championship this year, <laughs> we want to never forget the magic that took place during that dynasty. Now here was the dilemma. Basketball itself is a sport that you have to become individually good at. I mean, you have to practice and you have to be individually good at, and how good you are individually determines whether or not you get to be on the team. And then the moment you get on the team, you have to forget about you as an individual and begin to function in cohesion, but never lose your individualization. Which is interesting, because if you lose your individualization, you get cut from the team because we don't need you anymore. I hired you because of your individualization. However, it should not be the dominant driver for what causes you to function on the team. Phil Jackson did an excellent job of taking people like Michael Jordan and Scotty Pepper and putting them together without conflict. Dennis Rodman, who is the oddest person that I've ever seen in my life, <laughs> and Phil Jackson said, I don't need Dennis to be different. I just need him to be, to take his individual, uh, I don't know what to call it, <laughs> it's individualism and bring it into the team because there's something unique about that when it's here that doesn't function well when it's out there. He took Kerr, he took, uh, you know, he took uh, a number of people and put them on the same team and created some kind of culture on the team that even made Dennis Rodman acceptable. Our focus today is this, right? and I just kind of want to talk about what our objective is today first. Our objective is to gain a general understanding of God's demand for a kingdom culture. 
God says you don't get to choose your culture once you join the kingdom. But there is a different culture that he is expecting. And we want to take a look at that. So general understanding of that. And then when he has some thoughts about how it, that culture can be achieved in American culture. How do we achieve what God wants to achieve in the kingdom culture in American culture? And so we want to kind of think about that a little bit. And I want to give you three, we want to take three avenues through which we will kind of raise those issues. One is we want to talk about God's demand for a kingdom culture. First of all, I want us to understand that it's not that we get to choose our culture. When you come into this culture, it is expected that you would integrate into his objectives. Now, but you can't come in and say, God, this is what I've been doing. Adjust things so I can fit your culture. No, he is saying, it doesn't matter what your culture is. I need you to come in and adapt my culture, but I don't want you to lose your individualization when you come in. The next thing is, we want to understand what we must overcome to have a kingdom culture in America. Many times, many of us assume America itself can be the kingdom culture. And while I love America, and I wave my red, white, and blue like anybody else, uh, I, I stand for what we fight for, our freedom, our opportunity to serve, and fight for our religious freedom and all the freedoms that we have. Uh, so I love my country. I also understand that it is different from what God prescribes to the church. So therefore, we want to kind of explore where we are in our culture, and that's when it's going to get uncomfortable for many of us in here, and really get a grasp on what we would have to do in order to display God's expected agenda in this culture. And then thirdly, we want to have uh, some thoughts about how we can continue the work that we have started as Christ Community Christian Fellowship. How can we continue down a pathway that will lead to uh, that kingdom culture? All right, now I'm going to ask the question I want you to tell me yes or no. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, now every time I say does that make sense, I really need to know whether it makes sense. Uh -huh. All right, thank you. So the first thing is God's demand for a kingdom culture. Uh, here's, the, here's the first uh, point that I kind of want to say, and I'm synergized what I'm going to say in the scripture by giving you a point. This is the first point. Uh, uh, the kingdom culture becomes a necessity as God moves his dwelling place from the temple to the people. In the Old Testament, what you saw is you've got to get to the temple in order to worship because God's full agenda was integrated in the connection with the temple. So all the tribes had to be represented. Everything had to be represented at the temple. So everything took place at the temple. In fact, the dwelling of God was evident there because we saw the Shekinah glory, because we saw uh, the, the pillar of fire at night, we saw all those different things. In the tabernacle, we saw all those things so that the temple was the place. When we come into the book of Acts, God begins to make a transition so that the culture of the kingdom was not embedded solely in the kingdom, in the temple anymore, but it became transitioned into the people. And we'll talk about that for just a moment. First of all, it says, when the day of Pentecost came, so God chose a day that would drive everybody to the temple. Because they were used to that. We're going to be involved in the kingdom culture. We've got to go to the temple. It says, so they were all gathered. Or they were all uh, together in one place. So they all got there. So intentionally, God brought all these different folks together. Then it says, suddenly, a sound 
like the, like, uh, like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. So all of a sudden, what happened when Solomon dedicated his temple, back in the Old Testament, he dedicated the temple, this, this raging wind or spirit or pneumas filled the temple. The same thing happens here. And so therefore, that's evidence that the spirit is involved or this is a God thing. So they're experiencing that. Now there's the second thing that happened is they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire, flames of fire, separate, separated and came and rested on each one's head. So where the temple was filled in the Old Testament, now when it filled up, it represented itself in the fire that used to be above the tabernacle and moved to each person's head. So what it's telling you is that the dwelling is shifting. So in order to get the full culture of God's kingdom, now it's not going to be dedicated in a place, but it's going to be in the dwelling of people. So this shift begins to take place. Then it says all of them filled with the Holy Spirit. So instead of the temple being filled with the Holy Spirit, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they begin to speak in other tongues, which means languages, as the Spirit enabled them. So the Spirit gave them an ability. Now, they all they could talk when they first got there. So therefore, it helps us understand that the language they were speaking in was not the one that their mom and them taught them. This is a language that was a little different, and it was according to the Spirit's subscription or prescription. Okay? Y'all still with me? Alright. Let's go to the next point. The next point is the kingdom culture establishes an identity that supersedes other identities. There are no other identities that supersede your identity as as your involvement in the kingdom. And here's what it says. It says, Now, there were staying, excuse me, excuse me, there was staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under the sun. So, we're not talking about the God-fearing Jews. The Jews were a nation. However, they had been culturally diverse or separated or somewhat segregated under the rulership of, Romans, of the Roman system. So since Romans run everything, then they were divided, not in the way God divided them in the Old Testament by tribe, they were divided and culturalized based on their geography. Okay? So, at this time, all of them came to Jerusalem to experience this unity. This unity of the spirit, the culture of God there at the temple. God gives them this picture, and then it says, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together. Folks came together amazed, bewildered. It's not a black word, but it means, it's not a word that we use in our community. We don't say, boy, you bewildered. Uh, we're use uh, but, but it means they were shocked and amazed. It says, and here's why. Because each one, now they weren't shocked and amazed because this thunderous sound came through the place and they saw, they weren't even shocked and amazed to see the, the, the city fire. They were shocked and amazed because each one heard them speaking in their own language. In other words, they were shocked and amazed because people who normally don't talk were talking. God created a system in his culture to where people who the general culture says shouldn't be talking are now having conversations. That's what made them. That is more impossible than seeing fire above everybody's head. 
Okay. It's an unrelated they asked. Why are all these men Galileans? It says, then how is it that each of us hear them in our own native language? Now, this was amazing. Most of us, people read the scripture, they spend more time talking about the fact that people spoke in other languages. But what was most amazing is that they said, we hear. The, the amazing part was, they were heard and being heard and hearing in their own language. In other words, someone spoke to me. And that normally didn't happen in this particular environment, even though it was a kingdom culture. So, what we see is an interesting dynamic take place where the culture now is transitioning. So, first thing happened is God gave us this idea that his kingdom culture was shifting from meeting at the temple to dwelling in individuals. And then he says, and a communication system has to be developed so that folks can start talking to each other, so folks can be heard. So obviously he wants us to know each other in a different way. Then we have the third point, which skips us down to Acts 2, 42. The kingdom culture must uh, uh, must be a, and, and you can put the word in there, common, commonly shared, uh, must be commonly shared amongst a diverse community uh, of believers. In other words, God wants to pull everybody together, but he don't want you to be a melting pot. Let me say that again. God don't want you to not be you. He wants you to be you and still be there. Does that make sense? Yes? No? Yes. It's an interesting when you see a puzzle. When you see a puzzle, what you have is a whole bunch of pieces. And you know what? You know what the first thing we do? We segregate the puzzle based on color. We lay all the pieces out, we put all the dark blues over here, we put all the ones over here, we put all the ones over here, brother. And so really we, we set it up so that seeing the picture is impossible. And then you know what we start doing from there? We start finding pieces that where we can find common ground. And then when we start finding common ground, then all of a sudden the pieces that never would have gone together now start to go together. And then there is a tipping point. There is a point where you have so many pieces together that the puzzle looks clear. And you're like, oh, now all these pieces that were very different, you know where they fit. And then when you get excited, you start pulling together. This goes over there. I mean, everything starts to make sense. But if you never reach the tipping point, all you got is diversity and segregation. And that's kind of really the, the community of the world that we live in. So, what God wants to do is he's creating a puzzle. Now, here's the tough part. So gonna, it's going to be sticky for a moment here. Because what we're going to talk about is America. And we all love America. America is a great experiment to try to figure out how we can have freedom under some kind of guided system. How can you be free, but yet captive in a civility or some kind of civil law. How do you put both of those together? And that's kind of, I mean, we're a few hundred years old trying to figure out how to make that work. And so, there's some things we've done in the past that we believe were really right that made sense to our objective that uh, that really didn't end up where we wanted them to go. So we'll take a, a ride down that journey and kind of see what we're talking about. So, here's the question. What do we have to overcome in America? What, what is the church working to overcome in order to have kingdom culture in America? What does that look like? Well, let me start with a quote from Dr. King, and I have much respect for uh, Dr. King, and here's what it is. It says, Sunday morning, 
is the most segregated day of the week. <laughs> and he made that statement. We talked about that for a little while. And my question today is, is that really bad? Is it really bad that Sunday morning is the most segregated day of the week? Because, uh, you know, if, if you play basketball, you play football, then what happens is everybody who plays a particular position goes in and masters their position to determine what its contribution looks like to the whole. But if you put everybody in the same room, now you're talking from a general perspective, and then you don't as much strengthen people so that they can play in the game. When we meet on Sundays, we're meeting in somewhat of a huddle. And the huddle gives us insight that helps us bridge our responsibilities and our cultural influence. So therefore, if you put everybody in the same room, you lose them. Right? That makes sense? And I'm not promoting segregated churches or anything like that. I just kind of want us to get the picture. In other words, when I meet with Christian Fellowship, the things I discuss about the culture in which most of our folks live in and how I biblically instruct them on how to play the game of culture, of kingdom culture in everyday life is very different from what I would tell you. And if you came and joined us, you would never hear how you make the difference. You would only hear how they make the difference. Okay? So, now, so does that mean the Bible promotes segregation? No. What it means is, after the law, you got to play the game. In other words, if all we do is this, and even if we desegregated every church in the city, and did nothing on Monday through Friday, we would lose everything that God has called us to do. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, I just want to walk with me through this. So, let's talk about a number of things here. First of all, America is designed based on a racist structure. Now, when I say racist structure, I don't mean racism, I mean racist structure. That means that Folks are identified and valued based on their race. And at some point, it was believed that that was a reasonable way to live in humanity. By somebody. I don't know why, but, but it was. So that's just the reality. So it ended up becoming a system of racism. Now let me explain what racism is. Let me tell you what racism is not. Racism is not people hating the other race. That's bigotry. I think our church has so little bigotry uh, that these days we just don't want to address the systemic problem that's causing it to look like bigotry. Uh, but most of our folks have a passion and a desire for the kind of unity that God has called them for. We are just in a system. I give you an example. I, you know, I went to the post office the other day, and the people in the post office once had a monopoly. And so they didn't care about the customer. I mean, this is before internet and all that kind of stuff. Some of y'all weren't even born. But it was before internet and all that stuff. We used to go to the post office, and they would be eating lunch in the window while the, everybody went in line. And you had no other mail system. There was no UPS. There was no FedEx. There was no internet. There was no email. The only way you're going to talk to your people across the country is to mail that letter. So you had to stand there and wait 
was bad. So therefore, no matter how good you are as an individual employee, and no matter what your individual experiences was, it didn't change the system. Later, the system changed because of competition, obviously, and uh, still not the best. But remnants of the old system are still there. You'll still see that person sleeping when you walk in there who's mad because you're a customer. Okay, same thing in America. The system could be improved. And the system, we often defend because we think the system means us. The system doesn't mean us, the system is what we're in. Okay, so let me, let me talk about what a racist, what racism is. Here's what racism. Racism is, it is a system of disadvantage, privilege, and opportunity that is based on race that has an adverse effect on others, other races or other people. That means to give you an advantage, somebody has to do without or do with less. That's where the system is designed. Okay? So, and then, you know, so we see that across the country. The system is designed that way. The system is designed that way because it, it was based on a number of factors that it believed in. One of those factors happened during the time when America was being developed, and that was in 1708 through 1778, where a gentleman named Mr. Carl uh, Lunas, uh, Lunas actually, he, he uh, developed what's called the system of categorization. So if you've gone to high school uh, or elementary school, then you learned about how every, everything has been put into categories, systems, and the systems represent its economy of value. And what he did was he put together systems that he believed really represented each folks, and he did that in every category. We still use those systems today, categorizations, uh, but, but he also did humans. This is the system that he used to define humans that dictated what the laws and the systems would be in America. So, first one was, I don't want to read this in detail, but you, but you kind of get the picture and you can look them up if you, if you want to fact check me. First of all, he talked about the, eight, the uh, Americans, those who were there in the first place from an Indian American. He described them as reddish, content, and they were regulated by customs. In other words, you can't govern these people unless you use customs, uh, which means they can't grow, they can't advance. Uh, and then he had uh, the Euro European Americans, which is European Americans. He said they were white, they were blue-eyed, they were gentle, and they were governed by laws. So the laws are how you govern them. Uh, then they had the Asians, talking about Asians, they were sallow, I didn't even know what that word meant at first, but what it means is that you were sort of a pale, dead-looking white. It means kind of what it means. Uh, then he says they were gray, and he goes on to talk about them, uh, and he says they're ruled by opinion. And then he says, uh, talk about Africans, African-Americans, those who came from, he said they were black, they were cunning, they were lazy, they were uh, uh, lustful, careless, and they were governed by caprice, which means a swift, active change uh, that would drive them toward a different direction. This, these are documented, scientific descriptions of who we are, who we were making up who America is. Okay, that's just in the system. That system uh, eventually began to drive us to try to figure out how do you govern people based on that system. So we came up with laws. The laws were called Jim Crow laws, which were the laws of segregation. The laws of segregation were enacted in 1876, and they lasted until 1965. I was born. And, and its primary objective.
objective was to figure out how do you keep people segregated, because we believe people ought to be different, segregated, yet govern them under a same system. And the way they did that was to come up with something that was called uh, separate but equal. So, so you had these folks experiencing different things that were separate but equal. However, uh, some folks, since they were considered not 100% human, were experimented in different ways than other folks based on Carl's system of value or a system of economy on how you evaluate the worth of people. Now, we had two things that happened during this period of time. The police had a primary job of protecting white people from black people. That was their job. So, when I drive through your neighborhood and I get stopped, it is not that you have a prejudiced police. It is because you have a system that is being enforced by those who have been hired to do it. They've been trained to do it that way. This just ended in 1965. The media's job, primarily, was to help white people continue to understand the need for segregation. So therefore, everything that came out of the media was very negative to minorities, especially blacks, and very apologetic and positive when it comes to work. And some of that still exists. You know, I had a, a media challenge that you know I was going through, and uh, I remember I had a reporter, I called the reporter, this person from the start, I won't say the name, uh, but I, I called her and I said, you know the truth, why are you printing all of this stuff that's not true? And she said, for two reasons. First of all, the other person uh, who don't like you is uh, they own uh, a media outlet that's part of Associated Press, and so they print a lot of stuff. And the other part is, is that uh, I've tried to print the truth in the positive light, but our editors change it. That's the reason why I haven't run any articles lately uh, concerning you. And I said, well, why would they change it when they're supposed to be, you know, uh, a non-biased group. And she said, because you're not our customer. She says, our customer must understand that we have not lost touch with reality. And to come out and, be, and print what is honest and truth about this situation will make them think we have lost touch with reality. So since you're not our customer, you get the bad end of the stick. We have to endorse what is believed. That's my personal experience. All right, so, so that's part of the problem. The next part of the thing we have to overcome is what's called classism. Classism is this. It is a system of disadvantage, the same thing, but just change uh, a risk of the class. It is a system of disadvantage, uh, uh, advantage and privilege and opportunity is based on class, and that has an adverse effect on other people. Uh, so you have two pieces of economy, and the two things that kind of really took place that I think that kind of, that we have to overcome. One of them is what's called redlining. Redlining was being selective in who you would give loans to, who you would move this place, that place, so therefore you intentionally segregate the community by not giving some people opportunities. You pass them out and you get for those folks out there and everything else. And so that's the place. In my, I work on the City Planning Commission. Uh, in the City Planning Commission, I have had to work through several covenants that still had redlining in it. It's that we will not let blacks in our neighborhood, we will not let Hispanics in our neighborhood, and we will not let Jews in our neighborhood written in their covenants. This is, this is recently, this is in a neighborhood near you. Uh, so this, this kind of stuff just was kind of in the system. Now, don't get mad at the people. 
This is not about the people. This is about the post offices, I mean the system. <laughs> all right. This is about the system. All right. So now, here's what happened. When General Motors and all of the auto plants came in and they started hiring African-American folks, you now had the first dose of wealth in, in African-American communities. Because you now had people who did not need a higher education to be able to go down and get a job and make a living enough to buy a house. At that time, redlining started to fade away. And so therefore, wealthy African Americans can now move into neighborhoods where the property values were greater. However, when they moved away, they drove back in to their churches so that their wealth was a part of the ministries that helped them develop and get off their feet in the first place. Until, you really won't like what I say this, the adverse effect of promise keeping. The Promise Keepers movement came in and said, it's okay for blacks and whites to have church service together. Which means the wealthy and white blacks who had moved away, now it said, it's okay for you to have a white pastor. It's okay. So therefore, you don't have to drive all the way back in to be a part of that church. You can stay out here. So therefore, black people felt comfortable integrated in white churches and having white pastors. But white people didn't say, let's go to the inner city. Let's. And so therefore, now you have the wealth of the black community. Once a person gets on their feet in my church, they move to a better neighborhood. And since it's now okay, they go to a different church. Usually a church that is has a white pastor. So now the wealth that would have been in the urban core is now out there. So the urban church suffers because everybody who you help leaves and nobody from the, the, the affluent places come into the city. That's the system. It's not the people. Y'all look quiet right there. I wish you could see what I see right there. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so uh, now, it probably to do this on purpose. It's just that they tried to fix an American system by bringing kingdom. You can't part and piece away this thing. We have to create our own system. Does that make sense? Yes, almost. Sadly. The other thing is, is student loans, and, and I won't get into that just because of time, but basically, uh, who could get a student loan and survive in college was, um, it was, strategized based on the system. So now, here's the deal. God came in and offered a very different system. What we have to do as a church is we can't depend on that system. We have to render unto Caesar what Caesar's. We support America. We raise our flags. We fight for freedom because if it's not for America, then we don't have the freedom to do this. So we applaud America for who it is. We just have to come to the conclusion that the kingdom culture is different from American culture. Now, let me give you some suggestions. Except we ain't never invited him back. Here's some suggestions. How do we create a kingdom culture in today in America today? First of all, we must, we have the right people, we have the right passion, and we have the right position. We must continue to explore and develop the right practices. Listen, we are doing something. Christ Community 
and Christian fellowship are doing something that has not been done. It was not done by Progress Keeper. It has not been done all across America. And trust me, I've researched this to death for the last several years. And everybody who's trying to do integration is doing it centered on race, which is a, another racist approach. We are doing it centered on vision, and race is not defining our unity. So therefore, it really doesn't matter your race. However, it does matter your race because you were bringing to the table something that wasn't there before. So therefore, our synergy is something that America, I believe in history, will look back one day and say, we should have known this all along the way. So we got to stay at the table, keep having those discussions, keep having those car rides like Reed and I and Kevin, and, and figure it out what it should look like in order for us to move forward. So here's number two. Number two is we must leverage our diversity in the marketplace uh, and, and in, social, in the social world and in, uh, in life strategies. You know, uh, here's the deal. Just meeting Sunday just won't cut it. If you look at what they did in Acts, it says they met in the temple courts. It didn't say they met in the temple. The temple courts was the marketplace for where all the stuff took place. So they met in the business communities. They began to change commerce. It said the second thing they did is they had everything in common. So they created, they sold their goods to get together. What they did was they created a credit union that they had themselves so that they could loan and borrow and make money within the Christian community. So they had their own credit union. And then it says, uh, and they met in each other's houses and they got to know each other outside of the media description of who we are. They didn't let Rome dictate who should meet with who. Which leads to the next point. We must define each other based on our joint Christian experiences rather than a systemic flaw of information that we get. If you learn who I am by the media, then guess what? You will never know me. And if I learn who you are by the media, I'll never know you. God says, if we're not sitting at the table with open hearts, understanding who each other is by ourselves, then we will never be able to influence the system in our direction. We will follow the system and it will dictate to us a structure of segregation and separation that will continue on because the kingdom can't function in that particular environment. Let me say this in public. My mom, great cook, she uh, used to make uh, beef stew. And uh, I love beef stew. And when she made beef stew, the problem is, mama will put stuff in the stew that I didn't really like. So I'll come in, and the time from time to time, I would try to dictate to her what to put in the stew. I'd say, no, mama, don't put no onions in the stew. I don't like onions. And she would just ignore me and keep going. She would put carrots in the stew. She would put okra in the stew. My goodness. She would put all the stuff in the stew that I wasn't really a fan of. And then she would put some stuff I liked in the stew, like beef and potatoes. They could just put beef and potatoes out there too. But what would happen is when they all simmered together, the onions taste good because of the potatoes. And the carrots were enhanced because of the beef. You know what I'm saying? Everything in the stew got better because it was what it was in the stew. Now, outside of the stew, I still didn't like onions. However, inside of the stew, it created something that cannot happen in individualization. God says, in our kingdom, we can't function and achieve his objective on the outside 
of the stool. We can't. Unless we're connected together, then we can't. God, listen, what we're trying to do is like, like if you ever order something from a restaurant, and you say, hey, this is what I want. And then the waiter comes and says, listen, I understand what you said you want, but I really like this, so this is what I'm serving. You're like, well, who's in charge? God says, I want stool. And you keep giving me onions and carrots and oak and beef and potatoes. But I want stew. That's what I order. You order a culture that's so unified that everybody remains their individual selves yet contributes significantly to the overall essence. And that's what God is looking for as a culture, a kingdom culture that will change society today. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your blessings. We, we know you have called us to change not only America, but the world. Father, we recognize that we can't do that unless we provide for you what you have demanded. And that is a sense of unity that is kingdom-driven and that reflects the visible demonstration of the confidence of the rule of God in every area of life. And we'll praise you as you lead us in that direction. In Christ's name, amen.